Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello. Today we're talking to Professor Zachary Lockman. He's Professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at NYU. In a career spanning over three decades, he's worked largely on the socioeconomic, cultural, and political history of the modern Middle East. His dissertation was on the evolution of a, work, of a working class and labor movement in Egypt, which was published in a book co-authored with Joel B- uh, Benning, titled Workers on the Nile, Nationalism, Communism, Islam, and the Egyptian Working Class. He continued um, along these thematic lines with his second full-length monograph, Comrades and Enemies, Arab and Jewish Workers in Palestine, 1906 to 1948, but shifted gears with the publication of Contending Visions of the Middle East, The History and Politics of Orientalism, which, as the title suggests, discusses the intersection of the study of the Middle East and U.S. politics. But beyond his monographs, he's edited countless volumes and served on many academic associations and committees. He was president of the Middle East Studies Association, MESA, um, which makes the subject of today's podcast his latest book, Field Notes, The Making of Middle East Studies in the United States, published by Stanford University Press in 2016, all the more exciting. Professor Lachman, welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. It's my pleasure to talk with you. Great. So on the New Books podcast, we tend to begin with a general biographical question. So how did you come to the study of the Middle East? Um, and how has that impacted, how has those decisions that you took during your early studies impacted um, your later work? Okay, those are those are all big questions. Um, I think like many people of my generation, I was very, uh, I was I was always interested in history um, and interested in the Middle East from a relatively young age as well. Uh, intellectually, I think uh, the, the the main formative influences uh, as I began to study the history of the Middle East, the modern Middle East, uh, were, were the social history movement and the history from below movement in the late 60s, early 1970s, when I was still an undergraduate and a graduate student. Uh, you know, these are very powerful influences pointing in new directions for history in general, but also for the history of the modern Middle East. Uh, which up to that point, I think, had been largely told in terms of, of elites, 
very political history, and many of us were were trying to find other ways and and do the some of the kinds of things in in social history that people were doing for many other parts of the world. So it's in that framework that um, I did my dissertation research, which ended up being Workers on the Nile with, with Joel Bainan, um, which, which we saw as a work of, of social history to try to look at, at a non-elite section of the population and reconstruct a, what, it, what had been largely a, a lost history. Um, it received attention from a number of Egyptian writers in Arabic, and we were very grateful for their pioneering efforts, but tried to build on that um, through archival and other kinds of research uh, over this long historical stretch from the late 19th century and uh, into the 1950s. Class formation, working class formation, the right, emergence of a labor movement and its role in, in Egyptian politics. Um, I uh, Then I, I've continued to do some work on Egypt, published some, some things later on, but uh, as, as you mentioned, I, I turned my attention to Palestine. Um, also within the framework of, of labor history, perhaps. I've never quite thought of myself as a labor historian, um, but in fact, I've, I've worked in this, in this vein. Um, and, and did that book, Comrades and Enemies, looking at the relationship between Arab and Jewish workers in Palestine from early in the 20th century to the end of the mandate period to 1948, um, to look at the relationship, a, a, nif- a different dimension of, of the relationship um, uh, between Arabs and Jews in Palestine, and, and in, also to try to make the point that one can't look at, at the history of the Jewish community in Palestine or of the Zionist project on the one hand, or of Palestinian Arab society and its national movement on the other in isolation, which has often, I think, has was often the case. Um, so there was a, a methodological point I was trying to make through this uh, uh, examination of interaction between between these two social groups. Um, I've done various other things along the way. In the late 90s or early 2000s, um, Cambridge University Press was interested in a series of books um, touching on, on themes, issues in the study of the Middle East uh, and the Muslim world, and they asked me to write a book about uh, Orientalism, the debate about Orientalism, the critique of Orientalism. Um, that's something I've done a lot of thinking and teaching about, so I agreed to do it, and, and out of that came uh, Contending Visions of the Middle East, um, which ended up being a, a sort of introductory survey of the, the study of, of Islam, of, of the Middle East in the West, going back almost to antiquity, but focusing on, on the 19th, 20th, uh, even early 21st centuries, and, and particularly um, the role of the United States in the Middle East and how the, the politics of that intersected with the production of knowledge and the reception of knowledge, um, how, how knowledge and power intersected uh, in that. So that book I completed in 2004. There was a somewhat updated revised second edition in 2010. But along the way, um, it, it seemed to me that uh, there was more to be said about this from, from a rather different angle. Uh, contending visions may or may not have its virtues, um, but it's, it's, it focuses, uh, of course, there's, there's a lot about American politics, American policy and, and intervention in, in the region. Um, but a lot of it is, is also uh, about ideas, about the, the critique of modernization theory, uh, Orientalism and the critique of Orientalism, right? There's a chapter about Said's intervention and responses to it and so on, um, which is, is valuable. There are, I'm sure, things to agree or disagree with uh, in that book. Um, but it seemed to me that another piece of that story um, was, was missing with that focus on ideas, which is the more 
sort of institutional um, field building side? How does an, a new kind of academic field in, in American higher education actually get put together, get built? Um, and, and part of that is, of course, following the money. Right? Who made that possible? So it's a sort of a materialist approach, if, if, if you will, to try to make sense of that. So Field Notes, um, I think Canon, I, I hope, is read as a sort of companion piece. I, I tried to say I'm not going to talk about the ideas here. I've done that. Mm-hmm. If you want to get to those intellectual debates of the 70s, 80s, 90s, down to the present about Orientalism, the critique of modernization theory, all those kinds of things, they're in Contending Visions. Um, you can read them there. Here I'm going to try to do something rather different based on different kinds of sources, really primary sources of a different kind, and, and explore a different set of questions that, that you know, are in part inspired by, by a lot of work that's being done in academia more broadly about the history of fields and disciplines uh, in, in new kinds of ways, and I was trying to contribute to that tendency. In particular, I was really struck by the fact that as the story has been told to me, um, area studies was really influenced by the Cold War and Cold War politics, but this book really takes it um, a step further and goes back, you know, more than 40 years before that. I mean, you start in the 1920s, right after the First World War. Um, and I was wondering in particular what prompted that? What prompted you going? I mean, was there a moment when you thought, I should keep going back further? I mean, is there a reason why you did not go to the 19th century, but rather came to the 20th and decided mm-hmm. that? after the start of the First World War with the establishment, as you note in the book, of the American Council of Learned Societies and the uh, Social Science Research Council that prompted you to frame the book temporally in this way? Well, um, historians, of course, are always being dragged backward, right? You're always looking for where, some, where something came from, and that, that pulls you further and further into the past. So there's, there's that general tendency. Um, but it's not quite what I expected, right? I think, in fact, Contending Visions talks about area studies you know, more as a, as a Cold War story, as a post-Second World War story. So it was really my engagement with the archives um, that, that led me to this, because as I began looking into this, um, I wasn't trying to reconstruct the entire history of Arabic and Islamic studies in the United States, right? That is a very old history. I'm sure there's more to be said about that. I talk a little bit about it. Um, you know, the Hartford Theological Seminary, I talk a little bit about the missionary enterprise, but that's, that's really marginal to my main concerns. But as I started working in the archives of the American Council of Learned Societies, which goes back to the immediate aftermath of the, of the First World War and the Social Science Research Council, which, which really comes into the picture somewhat later for my purposes, um, I find that people are talking about you know, some of the things that will show up in post-war area studies. They're talking about the problem that the disciplines are too rigidly divided. Um, so that's something that 10, 20, 30 years after those disciplines actually took shape in American academia, people are already worrying about them and saying, how do we get beyond this? And they're, and they're trying to launch initiatives to try to get beyond that. Um, and the ACLS, or its, its prime movers, are also uh, saying that the humanities in the United States and the social sciences are paying too little attention to the world outside the United States and Europe. And something has to be done about that. And they are, uh, with funds from the Rockefeller Foundation and, and the Carnegie Corporation of New York, two of, if not the largest foundations in the United States built on, on the vast wealth produced by the, the robber barons who oversaw the industrialization of the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. They are, launch, they are funding initiatives to, to try to make that happen and developing new methods of language training, provide new, uh, 
funding resources, organizing conferences, creating new kinds of networks, again, on a perhaps rudimentary scale, very uneven, maybe tentative. Um, but to me, that it, it gradually became clear that area studies doesn't suddenly appear out of nowhere in 1945 or simply as a response to the Cold War. These are things people have been thinking about for 10, 15, even 20 years. Um, and it's not just about geopolitics that they're thinking. They're thinking, um, and we can see this in a variety of domains, not just area studies, people, uh, academic leaders uh, at the big foundations, at, instru- at outfits like the ACLS and the SSRC, who are academic leaders who are trying to make things, certain things happen in the humanities and the social sciences in the United States, um, have a certain vision um, of how to stimulate those fields, how to develop them, mm-hmm. and and there are some visions then that uh, inform area studies uh, long before anyone could have imagined anything like the Cold War. What I loved about this was this was, again, I mentioned that this was an alternative story to the one that I had been told about co- the Cold War and how the Cold War had influenced area studies, but in particular also for those of us who are also interested in Islamic studies, particularly because Islamic studies prompted the study, uh, the widespread study of Arabic in the United States. Um, it's also an alternative story of it's an alternative to the story of Islamic studies spawned Middle East studies and really contextualizes Middle East studies within the area studies pantheon. Um, And I think that's particularly powerful because, I mean, you introduce the characters of, if I can call them characters of archaeology and philology, as these specters of sorts. They really just sort of, they are the problems to be dealt with by these corporations and these councils um, to be countered. I mean, the call always seems to be throughout, you know, the 40s and the 50s and the 60s even, of we need to produce more modern research based on the um, the modern Middle East in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think another thing that dogs Middle East studies through the 20th century is this idea of intellectual inferiority, and it's something that um, I hear constantly in our modern context of Middle East studies needs to catch up. It's not necessarily... Um, you know, uh, theoretically uh, cosmopolitan. We don't have enough research as it is. We haven't filled in all of these gaps. We don't necessarily have all the women's histories we need. And um, I was wondering if you could just comment on that and how this running theme sort of ties the book together. Sure. That's something I talk a lot about in in the book, the sense in this field of of backwardness, inferiority, um, the, the notion that there are those other fields out there Right, other area studies fields and the disciplines which are doing these amazing things in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s, and we're lagging behind, and we're not producing the cutting edge theory, and we're not producing the cutting edge research. It's it's there, uh, and I provide lots of quotes from leading figures in the field who who voice that, and and are are are, are made very anxious by that, and are see see their their role as as transcending that. Um, I try to unpack where that comes from. So it's true that. Um, the study of the Middle East and the Muslim world more broadly in the United States was quite small and marginal um, until after the, the Second World War. Again, there's a long legacy of Islamic studies in the United States tied to the missionary enterprise, among other things, tied to um, you know, the, the American Oriental Society and its, its ideas about the Middle East, the study of the Bible lands, and so on. Um, after the war, people are trying to, to do something different, but the resources are very slim. Uh, it's very small scale, so there's a long process of, of building up new kinds of institutions, 
Middle East Studies centers, programs, departments. Um, and, of course, the funders, again, the big foundations, uh, Rockefeller and Carnegie, and then from the early, mid-1950s, the Ford Foundation, which is vastly wealthier, wealthier than, than anyone else, then starts pumping money into all the area studies fields, try to get that focus on the modern period, on social science research, some of it policy-relevant, but, again, not they're not doing it just instrumentally, and I think we have to be very cautious about this. So um, there are tensions there, right? Every every academic field, every discipline is is shaped by its legacies. The study of the Middle East is no different. We can talk a lot about, of course, Orientalism and all those kinds of things, but in Russian Soviet studies or Latin American studies and African studies, people are grappling with other legacies. So no field starts, you know, with a blank slate. Um, they're always grappling with things, and there are tensions and and both intellectual tensions and institutional tensions about what to fund, what not, what to focus on, what not. Um, and I was trying to show from, again, an institutional uh, follow-the-money kind of perspective what kind of things the people who see themselves in the engaged or, or leading the task of field building from the late 1940s onward are, are trying to push. With what re- degree of success, of course, is a more complicated question. One can argue that um, this, the building of this field, again, like the building of all fields and disciplines, um, had a lot of unanticipated consequences. If we look back, and I've tried to reconstruct this in the book, at what the, the, the early visionaries of area studies um, were trying to do, um, create new form of knowledge by focusing on regions, overcome disciplinary boundaries, and so on. So, of course, they didn't achieve what they hoped to do, and they never produced a, a theory that would provide a rationale for this. Um, and yet they created these ac- academic enterprises, which are now an apparently durable, perhaps permanent part of the American higher education scene. Uh, those centers still exist. They have their challenges. They're doing very different things now than they were doing 30 or 40 or even 10 years ago, perhaps. Um, but something came into being that then took on a life of its own in, in complicated ways. I was wondering in particular, just because in the field of Middle East and North Africa studies, the Middle East Studies Association looms large over almost everything we do. I mean, we organize our calendars around when MESA meets every November. Um, I was wondering what what role do associations and committees have to play in this story? Um, mostly because it seems as though, to me, from reading the book, that um, these many, like the ACLS and the SSRC in particular, believed that in order to professionalize this field, you needed a committee to bring everyone together. Right. Well, these were new fields, right? So they had to be built, right? Um, people had to put up resources. People had to have certain visions. They had to invest. They had to give money to universities to create area study centers because the universities were unlikely to, to do it on their own without outside funding uh, from foundations. And this is very much a foundation story uh, until 1958, right? We tend to look backward and talk about Title VI, the National Defense Education Act of 1958, the federal government getting into the act. But by the time the federal government gets into the act, at least I argue, the foundations of these area studies fields, including Middle East studies, had largely been laid. And they'd been laid by a lot of resources put up by Rockefeller and Carnegie, first of all, and then by the Ford Foundation from the mid-1950s. So, of course, the the federal money helped a lot um, and provided a a steady stream, although it's had its ups and downs. But but we don't want to see this as as a government enterprise or government-funded enterprise. And, again, the people who thought this up were at the foundations and in outfits like the ACLS and SSRC. 
So early on, if you want to build a new field, right, a, you know, a group of people begin thinking about this already during the Second World War, again, with, with some origins, I argue, in the pre-war period. Um, but they're looking at what's going on during the war and the new kinds of sites and practices that are developed to provide information to the government to serve the war effort, to the military, uh, to the civilian agencies. And they begin theorizing it as what we come to know as area studies. Um, and they understand, of course, that you need to make this happen, you need... You need people, you need organizations, you need instruments. Mm -hmm. So um, the SSRC takes the lead increasingly from the later 1940s, and it, it has the vision and it has the funding from from the big foundations, and especially from Ford, which is it's becomes its biggest backer in this domain. And uh, it, it launch, appoints these committees for each of the area studies fields, which are charged with field building, right? With setting up fellowship programs, which with supporting the centers, with providing a national presence, creating the the basis for a national field. Um, eventually, of course, many of these fields form their own associations, like Mesa, relative latecomer. Some of the fields, Russia, Slavic studies, as it was called, Far Eastern studies, which we today know as East Asian studies has older roots. Uh, Latin American studies uh, forms its national association, the same year Mesa does. It, too, is a latecomer uh, in a sense. But it's only when uh, there's a critical mass reached, right, when there are enough bodies, enough faculty, enough students, uh, enough centers, area study centers, programs, departments, um, a perceived need for a, a, a journal which will serve that particular area studies field, that this begins to happen, right? So I, I trace in the book the long history of efforts um, to to create a national organization like MESA. And they only succeed, they only come to fruition in 1966 under complicated circumstances um, because by that time, because of this l very substantial influx of funding into Middle East studies and the area studies field fields, um, these have these fields have taken on a life. They're viable. They're they're national, and people want to do what academics like to do. They want a national association where people can come together for those annual meetings and share ideas and and schmooze and socialize and drink or whatever else happens at these kinds of meetings. Um, and a journal which will serve it and a national you know represent its interests vis-a-vis -vis the other area studies field vis-a-vis -vis the humanities and social sciences and 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 so on. So I I try to trace how that Happens how that gets built, the contention, the arguments, the failures, the setbacks that, that that culminate in the establishment of these organizations like Mesa, which then, of course, has its own complicated history going forward. Once it's established, again, not a, a not a simple story there. I was also curious about. I mean, Mesa is this penultimate chapter in the book. I mean, that's um, and I was wondering more about what happens. Um, what happens as funds begin to dry up in the 1970s um, and as um, they continue this, these committees continue to push for a research agenda, for a theory to unify the field? Mm -hmm. So um, absolutely, the, 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 the bonanza years, as one scholar has called them, um, from the late 50s into the 60s, tons of money are poured into these fields and, and international studies more broadly, increasingly by the Ford Foundation. Um, but then there's also Title VI, government funding of various kinds. And then in the late 60s, right, with uh, 
as, as one aspect, a small aspect of a much larger crisis in American society, these funds begin to be cut back, and it's clear there will be a period of slow growth or no growth, even retrenchment, from there on in. Now, things didn't turn out quite as 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 dire as some people feared in the late 60s, early 70s, right? There were ups and downs, um, and fun, and these fields have continued to exist and in many ways flourish, but it, it did raise, at least in Middle East studies, the anxiety level. Um, again, people in Middle East studies were looking at the, the uh, also SSRC-funded efforts to develop a theory of modernization, right? Um, those kinds of things, um, political behavior, behavioralism in, in the American social sciences, very powerful in the 50s and 60s, and they were very anxious anxious, you know, again, saying, how, why aren't we applying this successfully to the Middle East? Um, this also coincides with a moment when the Middle East begins to uh, occupy a much larger place in the American uh, political imagination, and the U.S. becomes much more directly involved in, in various forms of intervention in the Middle East, right? If we think back, all right, since the late 1960s, 1970s, the United States has been a region of the world in which the United States has been increasingly heavily and and painfully involved for for people on both ends, uh, people in the region and and Americans too in many cases. So um, all those things come together. Um, I stopped my story in the 1980s because uh, my argument is that, um, of course, um, the the modernization theory uh, faces its uh, moment of, of, of failure and decline in the 1970s. It it, it's, it proves intellectually. Uh, a dead end, if not bankrupt. Uh, the same for behavioralism and and so forth in in political science and and the other social sciences, um, and and also and then from the late from the seventies on into the eighties, you begin to get the kind of post structuralist critiques, uh, feminist critiques, a whole range of things going on, which which. Uh, transform many of these fields or affect them very broadly. So increasingly, it seems to me at least, and, and I, I can't, I, I don't go into detail about these processes, I point to them as a transition moment, um, but I, I think in some ways they're, they're, they're very productive, right? They question boundaries between fields, they question and disciplines, the, the bases of disciplines, they open up all sorts of new avenues for, for thinking across previously uh, unchallengeable intellectual lines. Um, the impact of feminism, of course, and women's studies, feminist theory and women's studies and gender studies was, was profound across all these fields and disciplines. Um, and I think the net result for, for the area of studies fields is it becomes clear there's, there's never going to be any theory, any specific methodology for these fields. Um, that was always uh, an illusion. Uh, in many senses, although perhaps a necessary illusion when you're trying to build a field, that that it will have that, uh, and instead, um, you know, what what brings people to Mesa with all the many different things they do, their very different disciplinary backgrounds, their very different orientations, is they happen to be focused on more or less the same part of the world, but even the boundaries of that, of course, are increasingly fuzzy. Um, but that, I think, is a inevitable kind of development and a good development, right? Because people can still talk about. With each other um, in new kinds of ways, and um, what what holds them together is are, are these these intellectual, social funding, and other kinds of networks, institutions. The fact that we're all publishing in Ijmis, even though we may be doing Abbasid literature or the politics of Morocco or many other things in between, um, it, it, it's a liberating kind of development, um, and if. If, as I look back on on the, the quality of work in in this field, and I think 
probably the other area studies fields too, um, this has been a period of amazing productivity. And the scholarship that, that people are, have been producing the last couple of decades, and especially younger scholars and the graduate students of today will, I'm sure, do the same, um, has been extraordinary and, and is read by people in other fields and disciplines um, in, in a way which was not the case 20, 30, 40 years ago. And that's, that's a wonderful development. I think this is a, a burgeoning field at the same time as we understand that what, what it means to be a field has, of course, evolved. It's heartening to hear you say that in particular because in the introduction to the book, you quote a much more cynical scholar who says that the only thing that ties us together is geography. But you emphasized right now that uh, geography is a really powerful tool, both professionally to draw us together through all these funding networks. But as you said also, I mean, as you implied, that there is a lot of benefit to listening to each other's work. And there's a cross-fertilization of ideas that happens when we all come together and talk about Abbasid literature and Syrian refugees and Amman Mm -hmm. uh, from an anthropologist's perspective. I'm still curious about the foundations today. If you were to write a chapter, let's say 20 or 30 years in the future, you're updating this book and you're writing a chapter on today, how would you tell the story of the role of the SSRC and the ACLS? Well, so uh, the ACLS sort of drops out of the story pretty early on by the late 40s because its vision of area studies in general and Middle East studies in particular proves a dead end and the foundations don't like it very much. It's not focused on uh, modern, contemporary, social science-oriented research. They have a very different notion. So they're, they're a marginal player uh, in many ways. Um, the SSRC's vision as, an uns- as developed in the 40s into the 50s and beyond you know, also proves not to be the, the key force um, in, in propelling the, the field forward in many ways. Um, I'm hesitant to say how thing, how our con- contemporary period looks, right? I'm a historian, so I predict the past, right? <laughs> so uh, I don't think I can say much about it until we get to 20 or 30 years from now and then look back, and I will give you my interpretation of why it turned out that way. Um, I think it's a period of a lot of ferment, right? Uh, higher education is in a period of, of transformation. We're in the middle of it, so we don't quite understand what's going on, um, but lots and lots of cutbacks, um, you know, probably some good things as well, right? I mean, in terms of intellectual currents and people grappling with things in new ways, it's hard to pinpoint what those are exactly, um, because they are still emerging and and, and developing. Um, area studies, uh, whatever their downsides, right, provided um, a basis for, um, you know, what, what would, you know, the, the whole attention to the so-called non-Western world in the American academia, right, and undergraduate education as well, right, had a very big impact, right, and the fact that these languages are taught, of course, they're always under threat, fund, funding is always an issue, but, um, you know, there's no comparison with the character of American higher education, again, 30, 40, 50 years ago, in terms of its engagement with the wider world world, um, or at a minimum, it feels it should engage with the wider world, whether it succeeds pedagogically or otherwise or intellectually uh, is, is perhaps another question. So I wouldn't venture to say anything about the future, um, but again, I would, um, I would say that I think there are a lot of excellent things going on, and especially in Middle East studies, right? This has also been a field for political reasons has been under assault and under a lot of outside pressure, scrutiny, monitoring, uh, in a way that 
few other area studies fields have been, um, you know, perhaps there could be a comparison with China studies in the the 40s and 50s, right, during the period of the Red Scare, the so-called McCarthy period, when scholars were attacked, driven out of the field, persecuted because, you know, they had the wrong views about about communist China and so on, um, and some of the turmoil in Asian studies about the, the war in Indochina and, and American intervention and so on. So there may be some parallels. This, this for Middle East studies, I think works a little bit differently. So there, there are definitely pressures, there are dangers, there are individuals who suffer threats, persecution within the fields, of course, because they are deemed to have the, the wrong opinion on certain kinds of things, predominantly the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, of course. Um, but at the same time, I'd again say the, the, the intellectual productivity and the quality of the intellectual work, the scholarly work that gets done is, I think, you know, wonderful. Um, and there's no sign, I, I don't see any reason that should be abating, with all the difficulties, of course, of, of for graduate students now to go and do research in the Middle East, right? There are fewer and fewer places that's possible, mm-hmm. given the, the, the catastrophic situation in many parts of, of the region. You know, going to do archival research or, or ethnographic or other kinds of research is impossible or, or, mm-hmm. or difficult. So that will, that will take a toll, absolutely. That will have its, its impact. Um, but um, there are also a lot of very good things going on, and I... I, I tend to choose to be optimistic. I also find that very heartening to hear, simply because in the book, at some point, I believe it's, um, I believe it's in the 1970s, people begin to comment, "Well, the quality of graduate students is going down because people are just applying to graduate school en masse." Um, it was my sense of it. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, yeah. thank you very much for the interview. It was great to read the book, and even better to talk to you about it. My pleasure. Thank you for reading it. 